You are very welcome to this podcast, History Re-Read. This is a preview of the post for the 2nd of August. On the first Monday of every month, I'll present a commentary on a famous text from history, something familiar that many of you will have already read, while others, myself included, might feel it to be something we should have read, or must have read, but can't remember doing so. Over the other Mondays of the month, I will be relating that text, audiobook style, either in full or abridged form. In August, the text is going to be the Monroe Doctrine. The reread will always be prompted by a headline of today. Next month, it will be Departure of U.S. Contractors Poses Myriad Problems for Afghan Military Written by Thomas Gibbons Neff, Helen Cooper and Eric Schmidt Taken from the New York Times Updated Online on June 20th, 2021 There will then follow an overarching statement on the headline and story, and a projection as to what to expect at the summarising stage of the podcast, as here. The withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan will create problems for ancillary services contracted to both U.S. and Afghan forces. This is not an action likely to take the U.S. in an entirely new direction. There is policy history. The so-called war on terror as a response to 9-11 was overtly about retributive justice in relation to capturing Osama bin Laden and his associates, hiding in places like Afghanistan, but covertly about extending U.S. business interests abroad in relation to oil and the provision of services related to personal and corporate security. This was more transparently America's position in 2003 as the U.S.-led alliance prosecuted the Second Iraq War, with the then Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, seeing it as a crusade bringing democracy to the people of the region. Few Iraqis in the event wanted a Western-style democracy. Fewer still wanted it in Afghanistan. This led, eventually, to a more isolationist position under the presidency of Donald Trump. What President Biden is inheriting from his predecessor will be looked at by way of conclusion. Then, an overview of the reading matter or text under consideration. The Monroe Doctrine, an overview American foreign policy from the time of the nation's fifth president, James Monroe, until the present, can be seen through the prism of the Monroe Doctrine of 1823. Not fully understood as a doctrine at the time, it became so a generation later. It was meant as a warning to Europe against further colonization of the Americas, Later, in 1904, under President Theodore Roosevelt, who more punitively wanted it 
as a bulwark against barbarism, a corollary was added. A further congressional re-reading following World War I was undertaken in relation to the League of Nations, which, had America signed up to, would have given foreign powers some say over deploying American troops for peacekeeping missions internationally, thus contravening the doctrine or how the doctrine was being interpreted at that point. Now let's look at this withdrawal in more detail based on what we know so far about the doctrine. Fixed phrases such as now let's look at this mm, the story in more detail based on what we know so far about the mm, the text will appear in every podcast making it easier for you to navigate through the material. The adverb presently will signal a commercial break which is punctuated with this. But there won't actually be any commercials for a few months yet. The term without delay signals a change of focus or topic without the initial interruption of a commercial break. Once we get down to the analysis, there will be a recapitulation of the headline. Departure of US contractors poses myriad problems for Afghan military followed by some historical context before going on to a description of the story and then mention of its relevance to the text we are re-reading. The context for the full podcast next month begins thus. 9-11, The Necessary Context When the hijackers carried out the atrocities on the World Trade Center, most of the perpetrators were Saudi citizens trained in various parts of the world. That is the end of the preview. There now follows a repeat of last month's podcast stating the aim of these podcasts generally. A change of direction. The idea has been in this series of podcasts to have a kind of three-act structure for each, taking in the views from Germany, Russia and America in the 20th century from the perspective of a hundred years on. I had hoped, when starting out 18 months ago, to present historical events episodically on a monthly basis. But history cannot be trifled with in this way. In the view from America last month, looking for something to highlight, as I have been doing all this while, I picked up on a headline in the New York Times, French Criticise London Plan, a clear reference to the Allied Schedule of Payments Conference in London in 1921 aimed at finally settling German reparation payments. The agreement of the 5th of May that year was printed in the London Times the day after. It is an essential primary historical source that I should have made better use of by comparing the figures with GDP. Instead, I ran away from it, fearful of entering and not getting out of the Bermuda Triangle of what might have been German GDP for the crisis years of 1919, 20 and 21.
By contrast, in what would have been the view from Russia this month, I looked at some news copy under the headline Anti-Bolsheviki Take Omsk from the New York Times of the 6th of June 1921. I then wanted to go into the stories, implicit in references to nationalities and places, and afterwards try to string them together as an event for present-day consumption. How could I know, however, if everything mentioned in the copy did add up to an event at the time, rather than a fantasy about it 100 years later? Perhaps Wikipedia could help. I next searched for further context on this website, but in the process it soon became clear that there are at least two problems with my approach. I can illustrate the first just by quoting the non-news from the very article itself. Tokyo, June 4th, Associated Press. Omsk has been captured by anti-Bolshevist forces, and the Bolsheviki are withdrawing toward Tobolsk, according to semi-official reports from Siberia. Omsk is in western Siberia, about 2,800 miles from Vladivostok. Other dispatches received here tell of the revolutionary movement in Ekaterinburg, on the Asiatic side of the Ural Mountains, while advices from Japanese sources report that an insurrection which broke out recently in Moscow was suppressed with difficulty with the assistance of communist sailors from Petrograd. The situation in Moscow is described as still serious. These dispatches were simply updates for the New York Times readership following events on a daily basis at the time. Each is far too conjectural as an advice or word of hearsay to warrant much attention in hindsight. Nothing mentioned in the first paragraph could be traced through Wikipedia. More helpfully, the second paragraph mentions a revolutionary movement in Ekaterinburg and an insurrection in Moscow, but likewise both events demand more extensive research. Wikipedia is not the best resource for this, as we already know that communism prevailed and that its ideology was Marxist-Leninism. So in the bigger picture, this pair of events amounts to very little of importance given the broad sweep I've been intent on taking in these podcasts. However, if I were writing a more academic history of resistance to the Bolsheviki prior to the death of Lenin in 1924, I would have to look into both these incidents, and not just stop at the advices or informant hearsay reported in the New York Times, but examine what was reported, if anything, in the Russian press, or written down in personal diaries in order to find names, places, and first-hand witness. I might also want to see if there are any online or catalogued documents available on request from the relevant archives in Russia, starting with the National Library in Moscow. This is the job of a full-time historian, who, in pursuit of all these things, let's habitually call them primary sources, will have either an advance from a publisher, an academic fellowship, or both. This is not my day job, however I want to work with primary sources as much as I can. I had not completely given up on Wikipedia. Coming back to the article, the next paragraph, the third, but not the last, runs as follows. The latest advices from Vladivostok declare that the Kapel army prevented General Semyonov 
the anti-Bolshevist leader from landing there. Guards were placed on the docks, and simultaneously several members of Semyonov's self-styled cabinet were placed under arrest. These followers of Semyonov had proceeded to Vladivostok from Harbin to support the cause of which he was to be the head. Wikipedia made for a decent introduction as to who Kapel was. I guess that Semyonov, spelt with two Fs, was the Ataman general Grigory Semyonov, elsewhere spelt with one V. Wikipedia confirmed this. Then there was Vladivostok, a place I have visited on a number of occasions and its connection with Harbin in northern Manchuria. I used Wikipedia to remind myself that this was the last stretch of the Trans-Siberian Railway eastwards and safe passage for Russians fleeing the destruction of the Civil War. So there is plenty to go on here, but now we find the second of the two problems mentioned at the outset. Unlike the Wikipedia follow-up of the first two paragraphs, the results emerging from a search of the third one offers a ready-made narrative. We can trust Wikipedia with the facts, but the text is someone else's narrative. The danger is that I might simply end up paraphrasing the relevant texts from this website. And in this month's view from Russia, I have done that more than I would care to admit. I have had to do the honest thing and abandon the manuscript this month. There is no such temptation when following up on advices in the first two paragraphs, because if there is a story, a narrative to be had, it will probably come from any available archival material. Thus, despite seemingly offering the inquirer nothing at all, initially such advices should spur on the dedicated researcher to go further as described a moment ago. Newspaper correspondence like this usefully begs questions, as does Wikipedia. It is important not to see disambiguation in this online resource as a dead end. Take the anti-Bolshevism mentioned in the headline of the article. I wanted to know if it, in every case, was something aligned to the white movement. The Wikipedia search using the term invited me to disambiguate along seven different pathways. I took the one under anti-Leninism and found the section opposition from non-Marxists, pushing me further along the way. Mention of SRs or socialist revolutionaries who despised the Dvoryansva or Russian nobility as much as the Reds did. In this way, SRs were not in the least white. Although they carried an all-consuming enmity for the Reds as well, this did not somehow make them white either. Just as an aside, I wouldn't describe socialist revolutionaries as non-Marxist. To reiterate, original research along a pathway in some places digital, in others non-digital, is a full-time job, likely to leave time for little else. For example, Alexander Rabinovich's two groundbreaking books, The Bolsheviks Come to Power and The Bolsheviks in Power, The First Year of Soviet Rule in Petrograd, both from Indiana University Press, the latter 2008. They together amount to a lifetime's work for this author. Yet, Wikipedia is indispensable as a starting point to find primary sources with which to work. 
and for someone like me with limited time available, it is often a shortcut to a seminal document that deserves rereading. For example, Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Women, or Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto. Relatively more recent examples might be the Paris Peace Treaty. This warrants another look with Europe once again divided economically, as does the Good Friday Agreement, which set the scene for the end of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland in 1998. These documents cannot be collated as episodes to make some narrative sweep of history. The word history, of course, has no substance. It's just the label on the bottle, as it were, for a certain discipline. Overindulging from the bottle, this bottle, can make it all too easy for the historian to get lost in abstraction. Historical documents themselves, rather than Wikipedia commentaries on them, however brilliant, have to be read closely with a view to understanding the human agency that inspired them in the first place and the circumstances or structures that gave form to their existence generically. The historian should avoid any over-reliance on secondary sources and not yield to the temptation of lacquering some kind of narrative sheen over the material whenever the primary source does not have enough about it to unfold as a story. A document-first approach will come at the expense of a kind of episodic rhythm, but it will amount to a more honest way of relaying historical events in the time available to me. There is something called real-time history that has become rather faddish in recent years. The 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War in 2014 gave rise to Facebook groups, Twitter feeds and YouTube channels recounting the war episodically on a week-by-week -week basis, restricting information as necessary as if to create a cliffhanger for the next post or episode. Given the global nature of that conflict, ever graphically eventful, there was usually a piece of pathé newsreel at hand to illustrate climatically some aspect of the retelling of this war. Some of this digitally restored and colorized footage is remarkable and indispensable to historians. The remastering has revealed details lost for generations, and the colorization, rather than merely trying to recreate the hues that would have been noticed by the naked eye at the time, can be used to highlight the very detail that would not be otherwise noticed. However, old newsreel footage, when put together end-to-end, -end, amounts only to a narrative of what could or couldn't be filmed, either in terms of the technical limitations of the primitive camera apparatus itself, or as a commentary on what was or was not censored by governments and military high commands at the time. This footage is not, in its entirety, a narrative of the Great War per se. Nevertheless, I will be using some of this footage, as well as other photographic material, selectively in the companion channel to this podcast, The Buck Deer Corner. It makes for the easiest search on YouTube. This podcast will be renamed History Reread in due course. I hope you and I will eventually get round to calling it informally the Three R's Podcast.